0: But as I say, I am an alcoholic by my own admission, my own acceptance. My name is Ernie from Oshawa, Ontario. And through the grace of God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and a loving, caring God and a lot of help and a lot of rumors and a lot of people like you, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink of alcohol or mood-changing drugs since September the 11th, 1970, one day at a time. And, and thank you. Thank you. And I really don't say that date to impress you people, but I have to be honest and tell you every time I say it, it impresses the hell out of me. It really, truly does. Because I'd love to tell you from the time I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, I've never had any troubles. I've never had to look back, and everything's been great since. And if I ever told you that, that'd be the biggest lie I ever told. Because I thought I was one of that 25% that they talked about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that wasn't capable of being honest with themselves. I didn't think I'd ever get this program. It took me 13 years of kicking this program around to get one year of sobriety. And I hated the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I really, truly did. I didn't like your 12 steps, and I didn't like your 12 traditions. I didn't like basements of churches. I didn't like your coffee, and I sure as hell didn't like your egg salad sandwiches. But for 13 years, something kept dragging me back to these meetings, and I don't know what it was until I finally reached that point of deflation at depth that they talk about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was on September the 11th, nineteen seventy. And I think that's where my life truly, truly began. And the old timers, and I've had a love affair with the old timers and Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 39 years. They've been my mainstay, they've been my support, and they've always ever been there. I didn't like a lot of things they told me, but they had always at the door and they had their hand out. And I don't think they'd ever met anybody like me that came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So many times I came back to these meetings and the same old timers would be standing at the door And they'd have their hands, a big smile on their face, and they'd say, how you doing? And I'd put my hand in my pocket and say, none of your damn business. And I'd walk into meetings, and they'd get me half a cup of coffee and say, sit down and try and listen. And I used to think, God, you are the cheapest organization in the world. How come you only give me half a cup of coffee? I never realized that poor person sitting next beside me was wearing half of it all the time. But, you know, when I started to learn these things and looked at the old timers, the love and the caring and the sharing, I think that's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has always meant to me. It's a triangle of love, the love of one alcoholic to another, to caring that we can help you if you'll stay here long enough, if you listen enough, and maybe you ask the right questions. You know, somebody here might have the answer to save your life. And when I come in, I say, September the 11th, 1970, the old-timers were still there. And they told me if I wanted this program, it was in the big book. And they suggested very, very strongly that I get into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in my big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says in the fifth chapter, when I get up to share at a meeting like this, I should tell a little bit of what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And I try and do that because identification was so important to me. When I finally realized I wasn't alone and I wasn't crazy and somebody else felt the same as I was, and I started to get that little bit of ability to listen, things started to happen to me. And as I look back over my life, if there's anybody in this world who never had a reason for taking a drink, it was me. And why I turned out to be the type of person I turned out to be, I don't know, but I really don't worry about it today. I was born into a good Irish Christian, upper middle class Irish family. I was the youngest of three. I basically could have had anything I wanted in my life. All I had to do was ask for it. I'd never seen alcohol abused in my house. I'd never seen alcohol used to any extent at all. My dad told me one time he took a drink of beer when he was 16. He said it was the most vile tasting stuff he ever had in his life and he never drank again. So, growing up in this atmosphere, I didn't know anything about alcohol. I knew we had a few uncles that they used to say suffered from the, you know, the shortcomings and stuff like that, but I didn't know what it was. And the Irish had a great fact that everybody had the failing. And when you had the failing, I knew that had something to do with alcohol, but other than that, I didn't know what it was. But I found out when I got in this program and started to look at my life backwards, I found out I had all the characteristics of an alcoholic long before I ever took that first drink. I found out being the baby in the family, I found out very early in life, if I held long enough and loud enough, I could pretty well get what I wanted. And if I couldn't get off my parents, I'd get off my two older brothers. And I became a gimme person and a want-me person. Everything I wanted all my life, I want it right today. The first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I ever went to in my life, I wanted it. they were giving out a 20-year medallion, and I want you to give it to me that night. And he said, no, it doesn't work that way. And he talked about this day at a time, and I didn't know what a day at a time was. And I guess basically what I turned out to be, I turned out to be a spoiled, rotten brat. I'd like to tell you I've changed today, but my wife used to say I'm still a spoiled, rotten brat. But thank God for Alan on, you know, she got better. She really, truly did. And, uh, and you know, growing up with these attitudes and atmospheres, and I didn't really know what alcohol was, I just knew I felt different all my life, and I wanted to be different. It seemed like I always was looking for something, searching for something. I used to hang around with a friend of mine, and this friend of mine, it seemed his father had an awful lot of company every Sunday. And I didn't know what bootleggers were in those days, but it turned out my friend's father was a bootlegger. And he used to make the best home brew in the province of Ontario. And every Sunday he used to come up. I think he had a two-for-one sale because he used to get an awful crowd. And they'd come up there and they'd pass around this home brew, And every time they'd pass the jug around, you know, they'd take a drink out of it. They'd sort of put it down on the ground. And they'd smile and they'd burp and they'd say, God, that's good. And I was up there one day and I finally got up to nerve because I wanted to be like all these people. I wanted to fit in the same as they did. And when they passed the jug around, I asked them if I could have a drink, and they passed the jug to me. And I wanted to be the same as everybody else. And I did the same thing, and I tilled it up, and I poured it down, and I took the drink, and I put it down. And the only difference was I didn't burp. I puked. And that was the only difference I did. But I remember from that first drink I got down, everybody in class referred to it last night. People sat and laughed at me because I threw up. And God, I didn't like to be laughed at. I wanted to fit in. know, I really, truly did. And I remember them all laughing except one guy, and I remember he looked at me and he said, Kid, if you want to keep drinking, just keep pouring it down. That'll eventually stay down. And I accepted from the first drink of alcohol that I ever took in my life. If you drank alcohol, you got get physically sick. And if all I ever got out of alcohol was physical sickness, believe me, I wouldn't be here today. And I did get physically sick. But it wasn't the physical sickness that brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. honors brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous as I got off on a rage within my head that I couldn't seem to stop. The feeling that I was weird and I was different, and a little voice inside me kept saying, you don't fit, and I wanted to fit so bad, and I didn't know how. And it seemed from that first drink I ever took at that bootleggers on a Sunday afternoon, for the next 17 years, I can't remember too many days went through that I didn't drink. And I'm certainly not going to give you the impression that I stood up here and I was drunk every day of my life. I wasn't, but I can't remember too many days I went through drinking. And they talk about the progression of alcohol and how fast it is in the big book, and again, I had no argument with that because that first drink at the age of fourteen or fifteen, whatever it was, you know the one thing alcohol did do, it made me smart, or at least I thought it made me smart, and The more I drank, the more intelligent I got. <laughs> I got be, honest, I miss that today, I really do, and you know. And in the morning, I used to think, you know, I need something different. I don't know what it was, but I was looking for that age somehow to be a little bit different. And I became so smart through alcohol. Nobody could tell me anything. I had the answers before you even asked me the questions. And my father was a small building contractor, and I left school at an early age, and I went to work for my dad. And by again, by this time, the progression of alcohol was going on, and I was trying to hide it. And I didn't know how to do it. And I remember I was going into blackouts, and I didn't really know what blackouts were until I got the AA. In my way of thinking, everybody who drank, I just thought that was natural normal, that you couldn't remember what happened the night before. I just thought every, that happened to everybody. And I remember one time we were down in a little city called Kingston, about 100 miles from Toronto, we were building houses down there, and I said to my dad, I'm going out for a drink of beer, and this was on a Thursday night, I don't know why I remember this, and it was a Thursday night, and I went out for a draft of beer, and believe me, that's all I ever went out for was a drink. And every time I took a drink, it seemed to lost all control, and I didn't want to be that way. And I took a drink on that particular Thursday night and the following Saturday morning I came to in a clinic in Toronto. And I was coming out to Blackett and I was laying in this bed and there was a doctor sitting beside the bed. His name was Gordon Bell and I remember Dr. Bell looking at a sheet of questions. He asked me some, he asked me if I'd answer some questions and I did. And he had, he picked the sheet up and he studied it and then he put it down and he said, you know Ernie, he said you have a disease, a disease you'll have until the day you die. And he said there's absolutely no cure for it. And he said you're a chronic alcoholic. And I thought I was pretty smart in those days, but I sure as hell didn't know what a chronic alcoholic was. I wasn't too sure what the word chronic meant. But I knew what an alcoholic was. You see, the mess I'd been brought up with all my life in my house. An alcoholic was some guy standing on the four corners selling pencils out of a tin cup, or drinking wine out of a brown paper sack. That was an alcoholic. Here I was, 18 years of age, my father in business, my new car outside, my 200 bucks suits. How the hell could I possibly be an alcoholic? And I remember Dr. Bell telling me that day, he said, Ernie, if you have a problem living or accepting life or accepting reality, when you get out of this clinic, you come on back here and we'll try and help you. He says, as far as your disease goes, remember, you can never safely take another drink again. And I didn't think I had a bigger fear come over me in my life when that doctor said I can never take another drink again. And please remember, ladies and gentlemen, I was 18 years old and I just couldn't visualize living in this world without taking a drink. And I remember Dr. Bell telling me when I got out of the clinic, he said, you know, if you want to do something about your drinking, he said, there's an organization here in Toronto, and it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I very strongly suggest you go there. And they may show you how to arrest the disease. And I got out of that clinic at the age of, a very old age of 18, and I got out and thinking, you know, I couldn't possibly have a problem with alcohol. In my days, in my way of thinking, every time I had to think hard, I used to have to go and have a drink. So I got out of the clinic, and I went over to a tavern, and I ordered a drink. And I remember sitting there looking at that drink with that fear running through my head that I could never take another drink again. And I finally picked it up, and I took a drink. And the waiter didn't drop dead, and nobody fell through the floor, and nothing happened. Not a damn thing happened. And I thought, he's wrong. I can take a drink. But I knew there was something wrong with me, and I knew I had to change. And I thought, what I need is responsibility. If I could just get some responsibility, I could straighten up, fly right, and be like all you other earth people. So I thought, what I'll do, I'll go out and get married. If I get married, that'll give me the responsibility I need and everything is going to be fine from here on in. And please, God, I hope that there's somebody new here this morning. If you're looking for a way to quit drinking, a way to solve your problem, please don't run out the door after the meeting and get married. It's not about to stop your drinking too much. But of all the decisions I think I ever made in my life, that was the greatest decision I ever made. I've been running with my wife ever since grade four in public school. And Donna knew the way I drank, and she told everybody after, so I went and turned to She told people she'd change me, and she did. She made me worse, and she really didn't know And we got married on a Saturday, and, you know, my wife, it didn't take her very long to find out the way I drank. And we were married about two or three months, by this time I graduated to the fact of drinking wine in the morning to get me going. And she was reading Toronto Star one day, my wife never reads a personal column, I know she doesn't. Why she read it that day, I don't know. But there was a little ad in there that said, if you have a drinking problem, call this number. And she had a drinking problem, me. And she called the number. And it was Alcoholics Anonymous, and she sort of demanded they come out there and sober me up and tell me how to live right and get my life in order. And they said they couldn't do that. But they told her if she could possibly get me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, just maybe somebody there had the answer to save my life. And I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, not because I thought I had a drinking problem or I wanted to change my way of living. I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to get my wife off my back. And that's the way I arrived at the doors of AA. And if there's somebody new here this morning, I don't care if your wife dragged you through the door, if your boss threatened you, if a judge ordered you here, or anything else, it doesn't matter a damn how you got here. The main thing is you're here. And something in here you're going to hear, I hope, that will keep you coming back. And my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, as I told you, as I went to, was 1958. They were giving out a 20-year medallion, and the first 20-year medallion they'd ever given out in Canada. And they'd imported the speaker that night to the city of Oshawa, a guy by the name of Davey Thompson from the city of Oshawa. And Davy was one of the greatest men I ever heard in my life. Davy passed away about eight years ago. But Davy could carry a message like nobody had ever heard in my life. And Davy couldn't say two words because he had an impediment in his speech and he stuttered totally all the time. But he's one of the greatest speakers I ever heard. And I walked in that meeting of Alcoholics and Arms that night, the old 12-step group in the city of Toronto, and the average age around AA at that time was a real old, 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 old over the hill about 50. And I thought, my God, when you're that old, you should quit drinking <laughs> anyway. You know? I never realized how big you're just a chicken, you know, when you're 50. And I remember a woman met me at the door, and she asked me if I was coming into the meeting for myself. And I said, no, I was there for my father. And I remember a lot of people got around, gathered around, and Davey gave a talk. And after me, and Davey got me in the corner. And he said, listen, kid, if you ever have any problems or any troubles, you need help, give me a call. And my belief today is the second most important thing is in getting to Alcoholics Anonymous is sponsorship. The first is a, but the second is a sponsor. And Davey couldn't have said a worse thing to me than he said that night, because for the next 27 years, I called that man at some of the strangest places from the strangest problems that you ever heard of in your life. And, you know, for 27 years, he never ever said no. And he tried his damnedest to help me. But the one thing I heard at that meeting that night, everybody said it's great, you hear it at your age, you don't have to walk through the dump and keep coming back and all these other little cliches. I don't remember anybody saying stop drinking, they just said come back next week. So I went across the hotel again to have a few drinks and take this meeting over. And my wife didn't know too much about AA in those days, but she knew you damn well didn't go there sober to come home drunk. You know, she figured that out in an awful hurry. So after I'd been coming around for two or three weeks, she came to these meetings to see what you people were doing to me. And I was going to an old, a meeting in Toronto at that time, it was the old Cheerio group, and at that time it was right downtown in the slums of Toronto. And I took my wife to that meeting on a Saturday night, and they heard a speaker that night like nothing I've ever heard in my life before, and nothing I've ever heard since. And I wish to God I could meet the man today to apologize to him, not for anything he said, just for what I thought. And he stood up at that meeting, and he started to talk, in a room such as this was a lot smaller crowd, there was about ten people, and he started off telling a story. And he started talking about drinking beer as a young age and drink, switching from beer on to substitute. Substitutes who talked about car accidents and jails and hospitals and mental institutions and nervous breakdowns and financial bankruptcies and broken homes and broken marriages and everything else. And he ended up the whole thing saying, I'm an alcoholic. And I remember turning to Donna that night and I said, oh my God, Donna, I've never done anything like that in my life. I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. And my wife said if she could take back anything she ever said in her life, she'd take back what she said that night. And she said, no, I guess you're not. And that gave me the freedom to go. But that man said one other thing that night, and I didn't think I heard it, and it was to haunt me for the next 13 years. And please, ladies and gentlemen, if you never listen to another thing I say today, please listen to what I'm telling you now. Because this man told me the same thing some 39 years ago in the meeting with Alcoholics Nine. If you're new and you're sitting out there, you're having problems, and maybe you've got five years or ten years or whatever it is, and maybe you think this program doesn't work, and maybe you're contemplating going out there drinking, Maybe you haven't been to the places I've been to, or maybe you haven't had things happen to you in your life that have happened to me. Maybe you haven't hit that bottom that I hit. But I'll give you an absolute written guarantee. You go out that door, and you pick up that drink, and you keep on drinking. I'll absolutely guarantee you, you'll get to where I got to. And if you're sitting there with your closed negative attitude, it's going to happen to you. And I was sitting in that meeting some 39 years ago with my closed negative attitude. And I walked out those doors, and everything that man told me would happen to me, happened to me. And I'm not going to take you through a big drunk log, and I get no pride in standing up here this morning to tell you I can tell you about smashed up cars and losing licenses and jails and hospitals and trying to live better electrically and everything else. All the things that happened to me for the next 13 years were happening. And every time I got so low in life, I thought, my God, I can't get any lower than this. I found out there's a bottom to a bottom to a bottom that it never, ever stops. And it wouldn't have been too bad if it was just myself that I was dragging through that mush and glime and everything else. It would have been all right. But it wasn't. I was taking a woman that totally, truly loved me, and every time I took a drink, she went down the same road as me, she didn't have any damn choice. And all of a sudden, she started getting pregnant, and I wondered how the hell that happened. I really, truly did. And I remember the night my son Ernie was born. Ernie's 38 years old now. And I remember going up to East Central Hospital, and you know, they told me I had a baby son. And I went in, and I saw Donna. And I said, that's great, honey, stick with me and we'll buy a castle home and everything's going to be wonderful from here on in. And on the way out of that hospital, somebody offered me a drink and I never saw her again for six days. That's the type of person I turned out to be and I didn't want to be. All I ever wanted to be all my life was a good husband and a good father and a decent member of the community. And I didn't know how the hell to do it. And so many times it seemed so elusive to me that I didn't know how to change. And for the next 13 years, I had a love-hate relationship with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd never been able to explain to anybody. I'd be sitting in a bar, and I didn't know why, and all of a sudden I'd get into a cab and go to an AA meeting. And as soon as I was at the AA meeting, I wanted to be back in the bar. And I didn't know what was going on. Again, the old timers, they'd sit there and talk to me. And things I did and during those years, I'm totally ashamed of, but it happened. I remember falling off chairs, and all they'd do is pick me up and put me back in the chair. And say, try and listen. And things would go on in my life. And for the next 13 years, that hell and degradation they talked about just went through. And I pray to God, if you never woke up in the bottom end of a jail on a Sunday morning, I hope you never have to do, trying to scrounge butts and get that smoke, you know, trying to keep alive somehow, as you mentioned last night, wondering where your teeth are, or where your glass are, you know, you just don't know what happened, and saying, gee, wasn't that fun, I'll have to go out and do it again next Saturday night, I enjoyed it so much, and just, you know, wondering what the hell was going on in your life. And all of a sudden, you know, I looked for people to blame. It was never, ever my fault. It had to be somebody else's fault. And then my wife got pregnant again. I thought, my God, not much wonder I get drunk. You keep loading me down with these kids, and you have nervous breakdowns and everything. else. I can't, you know, I just can't handle that. And I remember, you know, being brought up, I was brought up in the Baptist faith. And I mean strong Baptist faith. You know what Baptists are like. You know, I never heard it really The reason Baptists don't have sex, somebody will think they're dancing. And that's, you know, about the way it was. And that's the way I grew up. And I remember, you know, my second son, Wes, was born. Again, I went up to the hospital to tell him, and I remember Wes was 31 minutes old, and the doctor came out and told me I'd have to sign for an operation. And I asked him what was wrong. He told me my son was born with a half a heart and he was crippled. And, you know, all my life I've been brought up in this faith to believe in a loving, caring, understanding God that would always look after you. And I thought, you know, if there's a God, why would you do that to me? I never gave any thought to my sons or my wife or anything. Just why would you do that to me? Why would you punish me with a son like that? And I never realized at that time that was one of the greatest gifts he was ever going to give me. And, you know, I made a vow in that hospital that night, you know, God, if that's the way you want to be, you go your way and I'll go mine. And I think, of anything, that's where my downhill slide started. And I'm not going to take you through all this crap. It was just absolute hell. And, you know, no matter how many times I tried to get back to this program, we couldn't get back. And I'd listen to him talk about this loving, forgiving God and the steps and, you know, total surrender. And the submission and acceptance of being an alcoholic, and I admitted that I had an alcohol problem, but I'm damned if I could somehow seem to accept that that was the total control of all my problems. And I didn't know how to change it. And finally got to the fact in my life I knew I was hurting everybody. I was watching my wife go through all these nervous breakdowns continually all the time. And I was sitting in a bar in downtown Toronto one day and I knew I didn't fit in with AA, I didn't fit in with, with people, I just didn't fit in anywhere. And I thought the easiest thing for me to do is just get the hell out of this world and I'd be a lot better off. And I lived in North Toronto and I remember coming up North Toronto, I finally got up to nerve and I ran my car into a telephone pole. And what I tell you from here on in is here saying I think this is where the grace of God somehow entered into my life. And they took me to Toronto General Hospital that night, in the very first place they took me in the emergency. There was a brand new doctor on that night and he thought I was dead on arrival and they'd sent a police car up to get my wife. And they took me in the operating room and they'd operated on me. And my wife told me after the doctor about the operating room, he said, you know, Mrs. Martin, he said, if your husband lives, he says it's up to a power greater than himself. And he said he has to have the desire. And I had absolutely no desire that I could remember that I wanted to live. And I remember waking up in that hospital some seven days later, my wife there, and, you know, I had a hatred come over me that I could never, ever explain to anybody. I thought, I can't get out of this stinking world. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no nothing. I'm just stuck in limbo, and this is the way it's going to be. And my sponsor told me in life, he said, you know, if you look back at anything, something good comes out of life, no matter what it is. And out of that accident, I created a hell of a mess. I had 400 and some odd stitches in my face and head, and I lost one lung, and I had a broken arm and a broken leg. And thank God for plastic surgery. I look a lot better today than I did some 29 years ago. And the odd time in a meeting today, you know, a woman will come up and give me a kiss on the cheek or something. I love to tell her, you know, honey, you're not kissing my cheek, you're kissing my belly, but you just don't say things like that, you know. And uh you uh, know and you know, again the growth and the things started to happen, things started to go on. I finally got into a fact that I forgot I couldn't work for a year, my wife was slugging groceries over at Dominion store and run over at nine hour and get me a bottle of liquor and I finally got back to work and back in sales and back in trouble. And finally my boss called me in one day and he asked me, Had I ever heard of a place called Oshawa? And I said yes. And he said, I'm going to send you to Oshawa. He said, I want you to cover Oshawa to Kingston. And I was standing in a little office in his office. And he said, the reason we're doing this, Ernie, he said, because we've been sold to know that in the States. And I've been told to get rid of all the garbage in Toronto. And I remember looking over my shoulder for all the garbage. And I was the only one standing there. And he said, the reason I'm doing this is for your wife and kids. And don't you forget it. And I never had any problem with Ego at all until I got to this program. Because in the morning he said that I thought, bull. The reason you're doing this is because I'm the greatest salesman you got and you go absolutely broke without me. And again, running home to Donna and remember saying to Donna, hey, honey, you promoted me and I'm being transferred to Oshawa. Stick with me. Everything's going to be wonderful. I can't buy a cast loam anymore, but we'll buy the McLaughlin estate and everything will be great from here on in. And I remember she'd sit at that kitchen table and the tears just rolling down her cheeks. And she'd say, Ernie, she said, I'd live in a tent if I could just get a little happiness and contentment. And I never knew what the hell she was talking about. I thought, that's her problem. She doesn't understand what prosperity is. (laughs) She's looking for this tentment. Money was the answer to all my problems. You know, I was always a couple thousand short. If I had a couple thousand, that would get me to where I wanted to go. And I could never seem to make it. Anyway, I got out to Oshawa And the very first day. I'm out there again. I ran into Davy. I don't believe in coincidence in this program. I just believe in there. And Davey said, we've got a love, little club here, and he, it's called the Alano Club. He said, why don't you drop up and have a coffee? And I went up to that Alano Club in Oshawa, and I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous like not anything I've ever been in my life before. And when you go into the Alcoholics Anonymous in Oshawa, you know, they meet you at the door, and they actually put their hands out to shake hands with you. And they ask you how you're doing, and they look you in the eye. They don't talk to the person next to you. They talk to you. And they say, how are you doing? And they wait for an answer. And they say, do you want to go to a meeting tomorrow night? And they still saying, "We'll I'll see it to me." And they say, where do you live? We'll pick you up. And for the next two and a half years, six o'clock every night, there's that damn beep beep in the driveway. And I just think, don't you people have anything else to do, like leave me alone, you know, go home. And again, I'd love to tell you, I stayed sober, and I didn't. And for 13 years, the longest continuation of sobriety I ever had was three and a half months, and I would have been far better off drunk. I was the most miserable bastard that ever walked on the face of this earth when I was sober. I didn't mind being drunk. I couldn't stand being sober. And I just didn't know how to face it. And finally get to a fact, there was a girl in Oshawa one night getting a medallion. She was getting a one-year medallion. I wanted to go with that one-year medallion because this girl's name was Janice. And Janice and I had had a love affair going on that nobody knew about it. Janice didn't even know about it. <laughs> and the love affair we had going on. Janice suffered from polio all her life and she walked with crutches. She had the ability then and she still has the ability now. God, when she smiled, she lit up a room. And every time she smiled at me, she made me feel good. And I wanted to see Janice get her one-year medallion and that night I was sitting in the meeting and they had a humorous speaker that night and everybody was doing their usual thing. They were sitting there giggling and laughing. And that's the night I knew everybody in AA had gone crazy. Because I was sitting in that meeting and all of a sudden I was looking at the person head. I mean, and they had snakes and all these black things and funny things crawling out of the back of their head and coming up through the floor and everything else. Many you know, people were giggling and laughing. I thought, to hell with you, you stay here, I'm leaving. Like, you know, I, I didn't know what hallucinations were in those days. But I knocked over tables and chairs that night and ran out of that meeting and I went on to the worst drunk I've ever been on in my life. It wasn't the longest or anything else. It wasn't the most severe, but it's the only one I like talking about up till today. And it's the last one I've had up till today. And I pray to God I'll never ever have to experience again. And I was associating with a lot of guys that have a little group at that time called Ajax Group. And Ajax used to meet on Sunday night and they had a policy in the Ajax Group. If you weren't there on Sunday night, they said I would put out a hunting party for you on Monday morning. And I wasn't there on a Sunday night and they put out a hunting party for me, a guy by the name of Jack Luton. And Jack got hold of my wife in the following Wednesday night, and they figured between my wife and myself, a logical place I'd be in, a logical place I was, was a place called the Cadillac Hotel. Now, I'm not going to tell you about the Cadillac Hotel. I'm just going to tell you every city in the world has a Cadillac Hotel. Now, I'm going back to my version of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way I interpret it. And in my Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says to carry the message to the best of your ability. It doesn't say where to carry the message. It says carry the message to the best of your ability. And thank God that night, Jack chose to carry the message into the lounge of the Cadillac Hotel. And I was a belligerent, mouthy drunk, and I didn't want to do a lot of things a lot of people told me. And he told me afterwards, I guess I was in sort of a blackout. He got me out in the parking lot, and I decided I didn't want to go home. And he said, again, I'm not recommending this as a 12-step call. I'm just telling you the way it happened to me. He thought of that passage to carry the message the best way you know how. And I guess he got tired of my mouth, and up, thing. next thing I know, he up and he hit me shot right in the mouth. <laughs> and I woke up at home, and I guess, about a half hour later, and I woke up on that couch, and I remember sitting there thinking, God, my mouth was sore, and I didn't know what was wrong. And he was in the kitchen sitting and talking to my wife. And my wife had just been, got home because there was a babysitter there, and I knew strange things were happening around my house. About the previous ten Wednesdays, my wife had been disappearing every Wednesday night, and I didn't know where she was going. But I knew something serious had happened to her because she was really getting sick. She really, truly loved. Because I was the type of person, when I was coming off a drunk, I was a shaker. My wife tells me I was the only person in the world who could stand perfectly still in the middle of that floor and sort of vibrate over to that wall. And, you know, she'd do things like get me a straw that bent in the middle. You know, I could drink up and tell her I was going to die. And she'd pat me on the back and say, you'd be all right, have a drink of juice and stuff like that. And then she started disappearing on Wednesday nights. And I'd say, Donna, I think I'm going to die. And she'd say, good, when? You know? <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. And I thought I hated AA. God, I come to find out about Al-Anon. And I had a hatred for Al-Anon like you wouldn't believe. They are completely taking over my life. And I am the firmest believer today that alcoholism is a family illness and alcoholism is a family recovery. It wasn't me that said it. It was Bill Wilson that said it. If he truly believed in his heart. If it wasn't for Al-Anon, alcoholics Anonymous wouldn't have survived for a lot of years. And you know the sad part I hear today when I hear some people knocking at all and on, I think it's really truly sad because the person I hear knocking it is the one that needs it so damn desperately. And it's really a shame to do it that way. And I love that program we started to grow through that program. We became one through both programs and it worked for in our family. And I did another strange thing that night as Jack was talking to my wife, I got up and went up to the bedroom. And I hadn't been in that bedroom for some two and a half years. My bedroom privileges were cut off for some strange reason or other. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed, and I didn't believe in heaven, hell, or nothing else. And I sat there and I said, "I'm beat." And I didn't know who I was talking to. Now that may not mean much to you people, but when I said I'm beat, it was total surrender to me. One more little story here, telling drunk log. You know, I used to make a lot of court appearances in my drinking career, for lack of a better word. And every time I'd go to court, first guy get up and he get a fifty dollar fine. Next guy get a hundred dollar fine. And I'd get up, and that old judge always looked over the podium at me and said, we got to have an example. And I was always a damned example for some reason. I can never ever figure that out. And the last time I went up, my four charge of drunk driving, I remember he said a $300 fine or something, and license suspended for two years, and I turned around to walk away, and he said, in 30 days in the Don jail. And I remember turning back and saying, what did you say? And he said, 30 days in the dawn. And I said, I can't. i got a wife and kids, and i got to go to work. And he said, you can? And I said, I can't. And he kept insisting I could. You know, anyway, he was right. I could. And and I get over that old Don Jail in Toronto, and I wear a size 8 shoe, and they give you a size 14 boot, and I'm slopping around in those boots and these jeans. And they put you through the shower. <laughs> That's experience in itself. And they took me up to the dorm, and they put me in this dorm. And the first thing they did was hand me a bucket and brush and said scrub the floor. And they obviously didn't know who the hell I was. And I told them I wasn't scrubbing no floor. And they said, fine. They took the bucket and brush away. And I thought, that's great. I'm not scrubbing the floor. They'll throw me out. And he's back. In about two minutes, he's got another guy with him with some stripes on his arm. And they said, come on. I thought I was going home. And to make a long story short, they had a hole in the old part of the Don jail. And thank God they tore it down in 1971. Thank God they did. Because that place wasn't fit for man or beast. And they put me down that hole. And to the best of my recollection, that hole was only like seven and a half feet wide. And it was 18 feet long. And it was nine and a half feet high. I had time to measure it. And they had an old steel spring down there, a cot, and a blanket. And every day they brought you that at 11 o'clock. And they give you a bowl of green pea soup and a sandwich. And they said, hand me a bucket and brush and said, scrub the floor. And for 28 days I said, shove it. I'm not scrubbing no floor. You don't know who I am. And when I went back in that cell and they shut that door, God, I wanted to scrub that floor so bad <laughs> but nobody in this world was going to beat me. And when I sat in that bed that night and I said, I'm beaten I think the grace of God entered into my life. And Jack knew me well enough that he knew I couldn't move very far without a drink. And somewhere during the night, he got a drink. And he gave me a drink the next morning at 7 o'clock, and I had a bad habit of not eating in those days. And he took me to a doctor because I weighed a strap of 97 pounds, and I thought there was nothing wrong with me. And he took me to a doctor in Oshawa, a doctor by the name of J.P. Marus, he's not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I just think he's a caring, loving man. And Marusus talked to me that day like nobody had ever talked to me in my life before. Maybe I was ready for it. I don't know. But he got things out of me that nobody had ever got out of me in my life before. And Marusus, if you ever see me, he always wears a fresh flower. Anytime you ever see him. And he talks about flowers all the time. And after a while, he said, you know, Ernie, I've been talking to you for a long time. And he said, I want to tell you a story. He said, my favorite flower, he said, in the world is a peony rose. He said, when peony roses are in bloom, he said, I wake up in my house about six o'clock in the morning. He said, and I walked down the end of my yard, and he said, and I picked a peony rose off that vine. And he said, and I sniffed the fragrance of it, and he said, maybe for a moment, moment and a half, he said, I got supreme sublime happiness. Then he said, I gotta come back in this uh, house, and the dog barks, and the kids wake up, and I gotta get dressed, come in the office, and listen to crazy people like you for the rest of the day. He said, did you ever stop to think, if I get a moment and a half effort out of something, what do you think you're entitled to? But he said, the biggest kicker of all, he said, did you ever stop and think, if you put a moment and a half effort into something, what do you expect to get back? In my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, I have never seen the program of Alcoholics Anonymous ever fail as long as somebody's working those steps. I've seen a hell of a lot of people fail at it, and I know I was one of them, because I put absolutely no effort into it. And when I started putting the effort into it and started doing the things that I was told to do, things started to change for me. And Bruce has told me that day, he said, Ernie, go back to A, because where else is there left for you to go? And as I look basically back over my life that day, I had been in something like nine drying out treatment centers, call them whatever the hell you want. I had had something like 14 shock treatments. I tried psychology, psychiatry, every religion known to God and mankind, of ARF, and everything else, and nothing in this world would stop me drinking. And I got a thought in my head, if I go back to Alcoholics Anonymous today, I'll do whatever the hell you people will tell me to do, if I can just get sober today, and maybe I'll die tonight and it'll be all over with. Because, God, I didn't want to die drunk. And I went back, and there was Davey and the old-timers again, and they still had their hand out, and they said, come on in. But this time, do what we tell you to do. Davey handed me the big book, and he said, read the book. Read those 12 steps. Don't argue it. Don't debate it. Just do it. We're not open for suggestions, and we don't give a damn about your opinion. Just do it. And those are the things I started to do. And he said, go to meetings. And I said, how many meetings? He said, you go to meetings upon meetings upon meetings. And when you get sick and fed up and tired of going to meetings, you get up and go to one more. And he said, come talk to me, but don't talk to me until you read the book. And I started going to go into meetings, not because I wanted to be, because I was scared I was going to drink. And I went to meetings every night of my life. And I sat there, and I shivered, and I shook, and I didn't know what the hell to do, but I just sat there and listened. And finally I was at a meeting one night and I was about three and a half months sober and I heard a guy talking at the front and he said something to the fact that he woke up one day and he couldn't remember the last time he wanted to drink. And all of a sudden I realized that thing was gone out of my stomach and I couldn't remember wanting to drink that day. And I remember a friend of mine, Clint, was sitting beside me and I elbowed Clint, and I said, God, I lost it. And he said, what? And he's down on the floor looking for it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I've never had it come back to this day. And I started to listen to people, and I started to do the new things, and listen to what you were telling me. I tried to the best of my ability to work those steps, and I accepted the fact that I was totally powerless over alcohol, and things had to change within my life. I'm about five months sober, and I walked in the kitchen one day, and Donna walked over and gave me a kiss. And I thought, my God, she's madly in love with me again. She really, truly is. And she never told me for two and a half years after she wasn't kissing me because she loved me. She didn't know any other way to check my breath. And that's all she was doing. But, you know, the magic of the whole thing was she never ever stopped it from then on in. And then came that magic night, the one year they handed me my one year medallion. And I remember Davey come over after they gave me the medallion. Davy Davey said, tell me all the people who patted you on the back and told you you've done a good job in the last year. And he and I said, God, I don't know. He said, tell me all the ones that kicked you in the behind and told you to smarten up. And I named all five of them right off the bat people that loved me enough and cared enough told me if I didn't smarten up and change, I was going to die. And they're still there today. My second, third, and fourth years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it seemed I got that Midas touch. Everything I touched turned to gold, and I thought I could do absolutely nothing wrong. And I thought, I'm finally getting the things I deserve back. You know, this is what I'm entitled to. And I had the big house, and I had the Lincoln Continental, and I had all the things that I was doing, you know, starting to do. But I started to lose that gratitude and feeling I had for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I prayed to my God with fear and, you know, please, God, don't let me lose this program. I don't want to do it. And I didn't know what else to do. And it doesn't make much sense to you, but it makes sense to me. In my fourth year, God answers me and he answers me in some strange ways. I was put into total bankruptcy and I was completely wiped out. And back I came to Alcoholics Anonymous again with my pride in my hand. And they didn't look and say, you're stupid and get back here, Ernie. They just said, we're glad you're back. And nobody looked down at me and said, that's what it is. And I found out, you know, materialistic things are nice to have. I'd just soon drive a new car as an old one and things like that. But I found out happiness isn't the money in the bank or the new car. The happiness and contentment has to come from within yourself. What I can hold in my hand or drive down the road isn't going to give me that serenity that I need to change. And in my fifth year of sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, my little guy West that I told you was born with the half a hurt and cripple. He'd gone through so many operations and things like that. And I had no idea how to live one day at a time. And when I was three years sober, I remember him sitting on the veranda with me one day, and I think he was nine years old at that time. And he was the one who taught me how to live one day at a time. We sort of reversed the roles. And he became the father and I became the son. And he said, you know, Dad, he said, sometimes the pain's so bad and I don't fit in with other people. And sometimes they laugh at me because I can't play the way they play. He said, but I just put a good thought in my mind, and I think of a good thing. And he said, and I get through the day, and sometimes it's better the next day. And, you know, he taught me to living that one day at a time. And in my fifth year of sobriety, he got pretty bad. And they said they had to do another operation. My wife and I were in the Sick Children's Hospital. And they told us the operation was a great success, and then they called us on December 13, 1976, and they said that we'd come back in the hospital, a crisis had arisen. And I walked in that hospital on December 13, 1976, and they told me my 15-year-old son, who must have died that morning at 7 o'clock. And again, you know, I'd stood up a lot of podiums like this and banged and thumped this counter and told you people I had an undying faith in God, and nothing could shake my belief. And I found out that morning you could shake my belief, because the first words out of my mouth, if there's a God, why would you do that to me? Again, not giving any thought to my wife or sons, but why would you do that to me? And there's a girl around Oshawa by the name of EDT, and he used to tell me so many times, she said, Ernie, I don't care how long you're sober, somewhere sometime you're going to have to go to the mountain by yourself. And after Wes's death, I had to go to that mountain by myself. And you see, you have to be awful careful what you pray for, because I prayed, God, please don't let that little guy hurt anymore. And God answered me in the best way he knew how, and I can accept that today. Nobody laughs at my son anymore, and he doesn't have to worry how he runs or he rides bikes or anything else. He's totally free, and he can do all those things. And that answered me the best way I knew how. And I got that feeling back to a God of my understanding and the support of my wife and my other sons, and we got through it. Then I got to the fact in my sixth year I started to speak, you know, I started to speak at a couple anniversaries and conferences, and I thought, my God, I finally found my niche in life. (laughs) That's what I are, it's a conference speaker. And I remember, you know, doing this conference circuit for about a year. And finally, I was at a conference one day, and I looked down the audience, and there's my sponsor sitting there, and I didn't even know he was there. And after the meeting, he came over and he handed me a cassette, and he said, "Go into room so and so, play that cassette, and come back and talk to me." And I went in the room, and I played the cassette, and the cassette was me. And when I came out of that meeting, he said, did you recognize that person, Ernie? And I said, no. And I can tell you people here this morning, I don't stand up at these podiums and bang and thump this counter and yell and scream and tell you I've got my faith in God. I'm not here to entertain one person here this morning. I'm here to tell you I'm an alcoholic who's found a recovery through this program. And I'm trying to live the best way I can live, one day at a time, the way God taught me to do it. And that's all I'm trying to do. And I found out we're all necessary one to another. And I don't have to be anything in this world except be me. And things started to go a lot better from there on in. And for the next ten years, it was absolutely great. The people that I met through the program and the growth I realized through the steps and the caring, loving, understanding God that I came to accept. And I thought I had it all together nothing could get better than this. And the hundreds of thousands of friends I've met all over this world was absolutely fantastic. And about three years ago, we were down in Florida, three and a half years ago, my wife and I were walking on the beach, and all of a sudden she got so tired, and she got a pain in her stomach, and she said she had a pain. Anyway, we came back, and we went back to Canada, and she went in to the doctor on a Tuesday, and they told my wife she had ovarian cancer, and she was in stage three. And you know, I knew about the disease of alcoholism, and I knew about living one day at a time, but I'd never seen ovarian cancer, and I'd never seen anybody fight the way she did and as I told you, my wife was a black belt alan, She really, truly was. And, you know, she never, ever gave up in that one day at a time. And, you know, sometimes we think we've got a hell of a struggle here with, you know, alcoholism. But, you know, when you compare the two with alcoholism and cancer, they sort of go hand in hand. But it's a terrible, terrible fight you have to put up. And my wife chose to live one day at a time. And she chose to the fact that she wanted to stay home. And I'm fortunate enough or whatever it is that I had my own business. And I chose to stay home with her. And you know, for the next year we got into a love affair that I'd never ever experienced from anything in my life. And after forty two years of a love affair, you know, you don't think it can get any better. And it does. It really, truly does. And we learned how to talk to each other and we learned how to share with each other and we learned how to care for each other. And things start to happen. And it finally got to a fact she had to go in the hospital. And they gave her a lot of chemo treatments, radiation and everything else. And then one night she was holding my hand and she was going into a coma. And the very last words she said, are you all right? No thought for herself, no thought for anybody else. She just said, are you all right? And my wife passed away 17 months ago, February the 24th. And I remember walking out of that hospital that morning at 4.30. And they come out of the room and they handed me a brown paper bag and that's all there was. And I walked out of the hospital. My two sons were at the emergency door, and they met me there. And I remember walking out, and it was real overcast, cloudy day, and there was a nurse walking into the hospital. And as I opened the door to walk out, the sun came out. And I remember that nurse saying, they never ever met me in my life before. She said, there must be a new sunbeam in heaven. And I walked away with a little bit of a contentment. But also that day, palliative care came to me about 4.30, and they said my wife had written me a letter. And uh, they gave me the letter. And the long and short of that whole letter was, I'm not going to go into it. She thanked me. She thanked me for being here. She thanked me for being supportive. And she thanked me for loving her. And she thanked me for being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 26 years. And my friends, if you explain the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I just explained the whole thing right there in a nutshell. I thank you for loving me. I thank you for carrying me for 26 years. I thank you for always being there for me. I'll never ever be able to replay you. For holding out your hand to me on September the 11th, 1970, saying, come walk with us, Ernie. If you hold our hands and follow those 12 principles, we'll show you a life that's second to none. And for that, my sons, thank you. I know my wife, thank you. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. Thank you very much.